In a careful and generous letter, Jonathan unfolded some of his difficult past as a student of Western art music in the Rio Grande Valley, and then at the University of North Texas, where his grandfather had had similar, similarly trying experiences as a music major 50 years, 50 years before. He ended with a gesture of compassion. When I hear your violin, the rearrangement of all those muted tracks into a steady rise and fall, I hear something my mother would find comforting. Listening to Jonathan, listening to our sounds through the ears of his mother, I found myself comforted too and wrote, in your sharing, I realize that here's yet another place where I'd been imagining a linear track that is in fact a richly inhabited and complex space. As we opened up to one another across our many distances, geographically removed from many people we love, something wonderful and unexpected happened. Through our doing of friendship, our epistolary musicking, we started to hear ourselves, each other, and our family's musical histories with a new compassion. A compassion arrived at, surprisingly, by way of a familiar and estranging musical language, a shared mother tongue that both is and is not our own. This felt, still feels, like what it might mean for the two of us to honor friendship, to give it its measure and its due. That was Michiko Toyer and Jonathan Liao reading from their collaborative essay, Reach. They are also the collaborative composers of the track you heard in the background. Michi and Jonathan are both musicians, scholars, and writers whose work examines issues of community, collaboration, and the legacies of colonialism in American music and culture. I spoke with Michi and Jonathan about music, writing, working together virtually, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm Aaron Winslow, and this is the Airlight Podcast. Hi, I'm Michi. I am so thrilled to be here with both of you. And I am a violinist, an intermedia slash multimedia artist, a scholar, and um, a lover of community. So happy to be here with both of you. And I'm Jonathan. It's such a pleasure to be here with both of you as well. I'm a writer, a musician, and a scholar. I currently work uh, and write and teach at the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. Thank you. So Jonathan and Michi wrote in issue two for Airlight a collaborative piece of music as well as a collaborative piece of writing entitled Reach. So a lot of this is going to be kind of focused around that piece. So I encourage everyone to go check it out. Where I want to start is with the central concept of that piece, which I think is really fascinating, this idea of epistolary musicking, because you wrote that piece during the, I suppose, the earlier days of the pandemic when social distancing was even greater effect. And so you're writing it from afar. I, uh, Jonathan, I know you were in Los Angeles. Michi, you were in North Carolina, I believe. So I'm just wondering if you guys could kind of tell me, you know, define what epistolary musicking is and maybe talk about how that concept has evolved or changed over the pandemic and since writing that? Sure. I'll take a stab at it. The idea of epistolary musicking as a concept for us, I think, came from trying to find some language to describe what we were up to, uh, as well as to pull together, you know, some different influences and ideas. For instance, you know, on, on my end, while we were collaborating, I had recently finished reading anthropologist Derek Scott's book, Stuart Hall's Voice, which uses an epistolary mode of address for its different chapters. Each of them begins with the phrase, Dear Stuart, uh, and it's a very elegiac um, engagement with the, the legacies intellectually and politically of Stuart Hall. Uh, and I was also reminded uh, of one of my longtime music mentors and dear friends, uh, Paul Rennick, who once told me the story of when he was young. He and his friends would mail each other these handwritten letters uh, with percussion licks and drum phrases notated on them. And then right by their signatures, they would actually get their sticks out and play the notated parts. So the pages, when they would arrive, would be dented up and even torn in some places. 
and they, they were thus these records of, of direct musical activity. And uh, those stories were sticking with me uh, in this period where distance and time were a major factor in Michi and I's collaborative relationship. Uh, Mid-pandemic, you know, where the world really did feel like it was ending, no vaccine was in sight, Trump was still in office, there were curfews in effect, sirens were blasting at all hours of the day and night, and were carrying people who were afflicted with COVID to these massively overcrowded hospitals. For us, I think we were just trying to express musically care for one another, inquiring after each other's well-being, um, sending these sound letters to each other over the internet, you know, signing our names at the bottom of the page, I guess, with uh, timbres and pitches. Yeah, it was such a beautiful process for me and kind of a new one because as someone who is trained in Western classical music, I have spent a lot of time kind of looking at letters that are already written and, you know, sent from 1700 or, you know, even... 1950, whatever it is. And so it was a really beautiful process to have this sort of open book of, um, of musical letters uh, that, that I would exchange and uh, with, with Jonathan and be able to actually inhabit this sort of um, digital musical space where we could kind of respond to one another and almost be in the same room, um, which was a very unique experience in that particular time. Have you guys kept that up? Do you still correspond musically? Do you still practice epistolary <laughs> musicking? It's definitely come in handy since I'm still on the East Coast. Um, we've mm -hmm. been, yeah, we've I've gotten to uh, collaborate with Jonathan on a number of other things, and um, it's really it's been just a, a really wonderful process of getting to know both myself and Jonathan better in the course of these different kind of prompts that, that we give to, to one another. Um, I don't know, Jonathan, do you want to say Yeah, sure. That? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, um, we still definitely practice epistolary musicing with each other. Uh, one of the really interesting things about our musical relationship is that we have not yet collaborated in person. Yeah. Like in flesh and blood ever. <laughs> We're scheming up some ways to, to do that, to address that now. But uh, at the moment, you know, most of our work together is, is still in that epistolary mode. And, you know, for that reason, for us, it's still a useful concept. Um, but I think it's a portable one in a, a lot of different a lot of different ways, um, as well as a kind of pragmatic description of how a lot of musical collaborations work today. A lot of it is asynchronous or at some kind of remove. I was just going to say, I think that's an interesting thing that this pandemic has opened up for a lot of my collaborations, actually, is this in-between space of some some of the collaborations maybe happen in the same room or the same space, and some of them happen in like across time and across space. And um, I think it's a pretty, pretty beautiful, interesting hybrid space to work with. Not just with COVID, but even before then, there's been such a long ongoing conversation about forms of digital relationships, digital communities, largely mediated through the through the web, I suppose. I mean, epistolary musicking seems, it seems like you guys are thinking of it, it there's something more intimate about it. There's something, because mm. as, as you're both kind of saying, it's like you're in the same room with each other almost. Jonathan, you were saying that, you know, talking about the letters and the kind of materiality of it. So I'm just wondering, in terms of other forms of, I don't know, virtual relationships, how does epistolary musicking? I mean, like to jump in, I think one of the really interesting things about, again, as Michi was saying, what the pandemic opened up was um, it imposed a number of grim constraints on a lot of us. Constraints as in, you know, not being able to literally see people that we love in person. Um, I, I think Michi and I were in the same place a lot of people were, where we weren't able to meet up with family, immediate family, um, for a significant period of time. And we're having to deal with the stresses of that, you know, knowing that different family members were differently susceptible to, to severe cases of COVID and things like that. So having to deal with all of that, and at the same time, still being artists, trying to find ways to respond to this, to create art that is not necessarily about the pandemic, but is un indelibly shaped by the pandemic. I think the fact that we had the internet to work with created, created a, a new opportunity for us to explore infrastructure that had been there for a long time, which is I think what you're, what you're getting at, Aaron. Like before the pandemic, like people had been exploring ways of achieving a kind of digital intimacy. And uh, many people had been very successful with that. 
Um, I know uh, George Lewis, you know, had been experiencing with that, uh, uh, experimenting with that for a long time. Taishan Sori, I know Michi had been doing it as well um, before the pandemic started a bit. But the fact of the pandemic made it feel like a necessity. Like we need to find a way to get close to one another because this is the only way we can do that. I was just thinking I'm, uh, I'm taking a class right now with Yvette Jackson, who um, talks a lot about their influence from radio drama in, uh, in what they call narrative, narrative soundscape composition. And um, I think that's such an interesting lineage to sort of tie into and reflect on um, in creating these kind of joint, uh, joint imaginary spaces. Because I've also been a part of a number of other virtual collaborative spaces that happen in slightly closer to real time. So there's various way, um, systems like um, folks at Stanford have been uh, working on and created um, Jack Trip and, and some other, there, there's lots of ways to uh, decrease the, the time lag, which gets, which makes it difficult to collaborate across distance. Um, and there's something um, really interesting about also just leaning into the time lag and saying, okay, we're, we're going to let this be an offering, a sonic offering. It, it may hit, it may miss, it may, you know, and then, um, and then sort of having this reflective space, but that combined with the possibility of being in that, being in that same time, time span, uh, imagine, imaginatively. How does this like, affect the, the music itself? Like, is it a thing where, you know, does it, does it change what you're actually playing or what you want to play or Absolutely. what you're able to do? For one thing, I get multiple takes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, it definitely changes the shape, the form of the thing we're making. Um, because at least for, again, for, for this particular collaboration um, last summer, uh, it was, you know, it was like awaiting the next letter and then writing the next letter yourself. You have as long as it takes to create that, as many takes as it takes to create that. <laughs> and you can try lots of different experiments in private before sending, you know, that offering off to the, to, to the person you're, you know, who's your interlocutor. And, and then you just wait, you just wait to see what their response is going to be. The result of that is we ended up with a small vault <laughs> like in our Google Drive of uh, all this material, all these iterations that we took to get to this, this um, what was, you know, the final version of that piece. Um, and there were many different sounds and styles that we worked through to arrive there. You know, there were things that were more sound art-y. There were things that were more rhythmic. We, had, we did attempt at one point to do some, some live uh, collaboration, but and and embrace the lag. I think um, the way that we did it was, I was playing something rhythmic, playing some drums or something like this, and I had my audio muted, but Michi could hear me, and I was recording it. So I got to listen to it after the fact and hear what we actually sounded like, um, but didn't didn't have that experience, um, you know, in the moment because of the of the um, technology. But in any event. I think where we ended up stylistically, you know, couldn't have happened unless we had those breaks where we could sit with something for a while, tweak it, take those multiple takes and transform them into something. Uh, and where we ended up, you know, was a place that I think we both really needed to go, um, but both of us were nervous about going there and embracing it at first. There's something about, I mean, this is going to be the probably the worst way to describe a pandemic ever, but there's, it's something like the, the world's largest artistic constraint, yeah. which can be generative, yeah. which can be generative, as you're saying. Do you think this mode of, of this kind of epistolary musicking or this asynchronous music making, do you think that's something that's going to change music moving forward? Hmm. That's a big question. I mean, I, I only have my, my little perspective as, um, as a violinist who enjoys getting to, uh, to share some sound files with friends. Um, so it's definitely going to change how I make music in the future. And Jonathan? Yeah, I think, again, speaking at the scale of just, you know, my experience and, you know, working with Michi and others, it's definitely now something we know we can do. So it's part of our repertoire or our, our toolkit, I guess, or creative toolkit. But, you know, th this is a concept also that isn't new and this isn't necessarily something that we, we invented ourselves, right? Okay, yeah. um, 
producers have been doing this for many years. Uh, musicians have been doing this for many years. Um, but it was only, you know, when the pandemic happened that uh, a lot of people, you know, who might otherwise have just gotten together in the same room, they might have gotten on a plane or driven somewhere to get together with some folks and make music. They were forced to find new ways of getting close musically. Um, for us, this is just the thing that worked out. But who knows? I mean, it happens all the time of, you know, you'll, you'll get a, a producer who wants to get um, a touring musician on a track that they're currently making and they have a really tight release schedule. And so someone, you know, who has access to a microphone who's on tour with that musician might just go into a back room of a hotel at some point and they'll record their vocals and then they'll mail them, email them uh, to the producer over the internet and then it's on the radio in three weeks or something. Um, that is a kind of epistolary musicking uh, in itself, but it doesn't have uh, the kind of intimacy, as you were saying, that, that both of us were striving toward here. Uh, because I think the unspoken concept or term that supports all of this is that idea of friendship um, that was something that Michi and I had before we even started making music together. Yeah, because it takes so much trust to to send those offerings out into the ether. And and I think that uh, this this process for um, for me certainly has been as much about getting to know Jonathan and myself as friends as it has been getting to know our musical overlaps and frictions and resonances. Yeah, I, I wonder if you guys can say a little bit more about the kind of importance or the role of friendship in as it pertains to music. You guys are laying out like a really a really interesting worldview about music and community and friendship. Why the idea of friendship, which I think is, I mean, to me, it's one of the most important relationships one can have, but it's not universally so. So why for you guys is friendship sort of at the centerpiece of, of your music making? Yeah, this is something that I've learned a lot about from, um, from composers, performers, mu musicians like uh, Marcus Balter, Matana Roberts, um, a number uh, Meredith Monk, uh, Pauline Oliveris, just so many, so many people who have really centered relationality as the generative force of musicking, of, of making music together. Um, and it really is, I think, um, even if I didn't maybe understand it in as many words for a long time, I think it's the heart of why I love making sounds because it's a, it's a way of sharing sharing a moment, whatever that moment, you know, it can mean different things, just like any shared experience means different things to different people. But, but it's this really nice uh, catalyst for, for being together. So I've, I've really appreciated, like Jonathan was talking about this vault of, of quote unquote, unused tracks, materials, that it's, it's like every friendship has vaults. And, um, and I, I really appreciate this medium for uh, getting to explore um, our relationship together. Yeah. Yeah. Everything Michi said. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, thinking about, you know, friendship has, with Michi specifically has been a great joy um, over the last two years now. And it's got me to think about other collaborative situations I've been in, musical collaborations. Um, and, you know, thinking about that relationship between collaboration and friendship, I mean, um, I was on a walk earlier today and I was realizing that, you know, all friendships are by necessity collaborations, right? And ideally they're collaborative, <laughs> um, but not all collaborations are premised on friendship and certainly not all collaborations are friendly. And so in our case, you know, we were friends well before we ever started making music together. So music became this new way of exploring and enriching an existing relationship, existing social relationship. Uh, but of course, you know, it also works the other way. Um, you know, people who have no experiences together, they can form really deep and lasting bonds through musical participation and enjoyment, which is, I guess, part of what Michi was just describing, right? That, you know, the, the kinds of conditions of relational possibility that music opens up uh, is really fun to explore together. And so to explore with Michi, who's, you know, consistently, you know, I'm just going to gush about you for a second, oh. but models the kind of openness and kindness and uh, willingness to experiment, you know, that we, I, that I hope for in friends and collaborators has been really great.
Well, it's been so amazing getting to collaborate with you, Jonathan, because of the way that you listen. And so like, listen sonically, like it's it's so clear the ways that, that you are attending, not only to the things that I um, send in the sound file, but also to the, the peripheral things, the things that I have said, oh, this was cool and this happened the other day or, you know, or whatever it is like, I'm feeling a little, I don't know about this, it, you know, so it, it um, yeah, I think it's a multidimensional uh, collaboration and um, it's cool to be able to share some of, some of those dimensions through, through sounds with other folks. It's, it's interesting how the sort of, I mean, obviously the, the music itself becomes like another, another voice in the conversation, I suppose, but also becomes almost, it seems like another kind of as you said, another Michi, another dimension or perhaps another entity. Can you tell me about, cause you guys, did you guys meet at the tiny studio <laughs> salon or was that? I think something... we met before that at a, a grad student event at Stanford. Is that right, Jonathan? Yeah, we met at a party. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Very <Yeah>. cool. <laughs> I remember parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They something out of a great. distant past where there were no masks and no risks of, yeah. you know, existential threat. <laughs> Sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about the tiny studio salon? Is that still going on or? Sure. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of morphed in into a slightly different format, um, slightly different constellation of participants. Um, but uh, originally, I'd, I was talking with a, f a friend of mine, a wonderful composer uh, named Julie Zhu. We were saying there just needs to be a space for the kind of works in progress in between the cracks, like people to share how they're doing, what, they, what they're excited about. And I don't feel comfortable doing that in the the lounge of our, our, you know, building, uh, the academic building. And, um, and I said, you know, it's too bad. My, my apartment is so tiny. Otherwise I could like, you know, invite people over. And then I, I was like, well, maybe I could make that the thing, make that the shtick. And, um, and it just became this kind of, for me, really joyous and generative space of, of people kind of embracing the fact that to sit on the floor sit on the bed sit on the table and and come as you are and um it's so not a bug a, it's a feature <laughs> yeah and and for me it was also this this amazing moment after the after the first one um you know and i was sitting with this sink full of dishes and and like basking in the the glow i realized i had the same feeling that i had um after a really a really great performance where I felt like I was in the flow and really connecting with with the people in the room and I realized you know what I think that's actually what I like about performing it's connecting with the people and so so yeah I don't know but Jonathan I'm curious to hear what your your experience was as oh my god no the the tiny studio and now the garden parties that uh that Michi organizes are so much fun they are wonderful opportunities for people again to share work that they feel is in progress or you know that they want to get some kind of reaction um to it's not it's not like not like i'm going to focus test this track or this piece i'm working on but more like i'm going to share this thing that i'm making with you who i've developed relationships with through a number of different garden parties or tiny studios and treat again treat it as an offering and see and see where people go with it what they take from it and so it's it's been it's been really a treat to see to see how that's developed over the years, um, and how that's dovetailing with what other you know musical work that Michi is doing. What seems like they are you know two separate endeavors are really this, two sides of the exact same spirit of again as Michi was saying, focusing on the relational aspects that music opens up or musicing opens up, treating it you know to to riff on Vijay Iyer treating it um, not as a noun, but as a verb, as something you do with others. Um, and in that doing, you end up making new worlds. Mm. I'm really indebted to um, this wonderful theater artist named Haruna Lee, who led this, I, I don't even want to call it a course, because it felt like just this oasis of, of support um, during the pandemic. Um, and they shared this idea that, that community stewardship was the best way that they felt that they could share their artistry during the pandemic. And 
it was so like this it was this light bulb for me it's like yeah actually that's that's what i want to do with with my whatever tools that i have um and so i've just been so honored to be able to share these spaces with with folks like Jonathan and Jonathan, I also I just have to to plug your um, your incredible. Actually, this was this was one of the first uh, projects that I knew from you, Futuro Conjunto, um, which is this incredible I think community building uh, creation. I don't know if you want to say anything about how you see that in in the views of what we've just been talking about. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, that, that's a project that was a collaboration with uh, Charlie Vela, who's an incredible, um, you know, Borderlands-based um, um, producer of music, of things you watch, of <laughs> like all of the things, basically. He's an amazing person. And the, the premise of that was, you know, to imagine a, a future for a community, a future together um, in a border space um, that consistently has futures thrust upon it as opposed to futures built from within. Uh, and it involved lots of different community members. And uh, we had we had just finished that uh, when, when Michi and I started working together musically uh, for the first time uh, last summer. And so that was still, you know, it was fresh on my mind and it was, it was one of the things that we talked about uh, routinely. But what's so interesting to me, um, you know, is, is, so that was, that was, part of the conversation, you know, the pandemic was part of the conversation. Um, both of us were thinking about community and community building in, a, in our different ways that were complementary. But what I was saying before about like where we ended up stylistically was extremely important for us and for our, you know, it, it continues to be important for us. This idea of winding up in a, you know, a Western art musical cosmos that we grow up being taught is beautiful. We grew up being taught is the thing to aspire toward and eventually realizing that doesn't love us back, right? What do you do with a love that is not reciprocated? You know, a love for a tradition that is not reciprocated, right? What do you do when you learn all of the things that are associated with that tradition? And yet it still brings you joy. It still brings you some feeling, right? Uh, it still works on you in some way. What new kinds of stories can be developed out of those feelings, I think is one of the things that we started to open up together. Um, you know, with these sounds that come with all that colonial baggage, how can we create a new frame around those sounds and tell new stories using them so that the, the way that we tap into these traditions is reparative in some way, decolonial in some way, with as colonial a language as you can get <laughs> harmonically and, you know, musically. And then always the end result is what new kinds of community and relation can be can be made with those materials. Mm. Um, there's one story I wanted to share because I think it, it's related to this. Um, so very recently, it was just a couple of days ago, Michi and I, we traded these childhood photographs of ourselves <laughs> um, from a, around 1991. We were both around two or three years old. And in mine, I'm seated in my father's lap um, as he's holding me up to a piano at my maternal grandfather's home and my arms are outstretched uh, to reach the keys. And, and Michi in, in hers is, is beaming during this <laughs> lesson that she's just taken with her mother. And she's holding a bright and tiny, adorable violin in her hands. And there's this joy and this wonder on her faces in these photos. And when I looked at them side by side, it brought me joy in the moment and also brought me to tears because because that joy is so consistently written over and extracted right and turned against people particularly musicians people of color who come to western art music in good faith right and who participate in that culture in good faith who realize you know that it is a musically elitist tradition and environment and have to decide what they want to do with that knowledge, you know, how they respond to that. And so in the work that we do, what I want to do from now on is basically anytime we're making anything, hold those photos up next to each other and to imagine that we're in some ways still those children, right? Finding mm -hmm. joy and now finding friendship with others uh, through making sounds on these strange instruments that are before us. Yeah, I think one of the things that this collaboration 
has consistently brought me is a sense of compassion for um, both for my younger self and my my present self, um, and and just more generally for um, I don't know for for everyone who's in some way connected with or wishing they they were connected with or not wanting at all to be connected with this um, this very exclusive and uh, and non not terribly conducive to community building culture that that you know I fell in love with and uh, and I'm now I now have this privilege of reimagining my relationship to alongside Jonathan so I'm really really grateful to you for that in the reach piece Michi you describe Futuro Conjunto as visionary fiction mm-hmm. which I think you link it to the I forget who you cite actually but like you, Octavia Butler or, or Adrian Marie Brown yes yes yeah yeah but it's yeah. it's linked to Octavia Butler's mm-hmm. fiction the, sci- yeah. the science fiction writer and it's really interesting what you guys are describing this process of sort of visionary fiction of world building that's both sort of in terms of the content itself, especially, I mean, in both both Reach and something like Reach, which is which is is world building sonically and non-representationally, I suppose, but then something like Futuro Conjunto, which is a much more representational form of, of world building. But then at the level, like outside of that, this idea of using that world building as a way to actually build like a real world. I like the way those two, those, those two things meet up. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, something I've been working on for myself is also just appreciating the ways that this visionary, this kind of world building can exist on a very microscopic level of just building our my relationship with Jonathan and um, understanding and, and with myself and, um, you know, using sounds as a tool for that yeah and you know moving moving in a different direction the the opposite direction in terms of scale and and what music does and can do i also i we should mention too that you know like many people would would be very quick to remind us that music and musicking itself it, it doesn't do things like stop wars right it doesn't reverse climate change it doesn't um like explicitly address you know, injustices of what my, you know, colleague here, Zakia Jackson, has called modernity's crucible. And Josh Kuhn has also written about this beautifully, as well as lots of other people. But in many cases, as Michi is saying, right, music, uh, it can affect change at a social level. It can create new conditions of possibility for social praxis, political intervention. And there are always, of course, debates about, you know, how that works at the level of form, right? Like, what specific timbres or rhythms or harmonies or instruments are decolonial or create the conditions of possibility for new stuff. But I think that like, while those are interesting conversations, the magic is always in thinking about music as an act, as a mode of relating to one another, as a, as a verb, as not something that's this reified object that you sit down and analyze and describe, right? It's a thing that you, that you do together. Um, and, it, you know, in addition, right, to, to all the wonderful composers and performers Michi's already mentioned, I mean, there's Amiri Baraka, who thinks about that, of course, mm-hmm. right? Um, Esteban Jordan um, from the RGV, Esperanza Spalding, um, again, Taishan Sori and Vijay Iyer, many, many people before us have articulated these things. And I think for us, you know, it's everybody's on an individual journey and um, we've been able to enter into this tradition uh, together and to find answers to these questions um, in each other's company, which is, I think, one of the best ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also just the fact that um, that this sort of colonial folk musical focus ha- is so much on uh, separated, uh, separating the sounds from the physical context, from the dance, from the gesture, from the ways that music does things in the world, which um, is a very specifically, you know. European 19th century and you know somewhere around there kind of idea and so it's been um for me I'm I'm just working on widening my my visual visual focus auditory focus I don't know everything focus and trying to reconnect that practice with my whole self which hopefully connects with other whole selves it's interesting thinking about 
the politics of music in this sense where it's maybe not yeah nobody's found like the tone that's going to like bring like the specific tone that brings down capitalism or something but <laughs> i mean yet maybe eventually but but for now it's it's almost as you're saying it's really interesting to think of it as a precondition for any sort of change a precondition for any sort of social i don't know maybe that's not quite what you're getting at but it's it's got to be part of the grounds that you're working on yeah certainly i mean and also this is this is the thesis of um, michael denning's noise uprising right that um you know that in many many historical instances cultural revolutions have preceded political revolutions um there, there are many instances of that happening uh, all over the world but yeah, I think I think part of it is just at the level of scale, right? Like if if you, you know, Fermici, Fermici and I, uh, us musicking together at a distance, feels like a different way of of being when we're doing it. It's in the activity, the in the doing of it, as opposed to even in the the record that's left behind of that activity, which are which is the track we can listen to. Right. The, the music, the music happened when we were sending the letters. Right. And the the, the track is the photo that we took at the event. Right. Mm -hmm. In some respects. But but it's it's not the thing that it's not the thing itself. I mean, one another thing that I was really, really fascinated in too, not to throw any curveballs or anything, but like one thing that Michi and I have been talking about a lot recently, um, which is connected, is is the idea of virtuosity. And, you know, we were in a recent conversation, we were riffing on ideas of virtuosity and how that concept, musical virtuosity, how that concept might be exploded, right? Um, so just in the key of this conversation, right, like what is something like a communal virtuosity look like and feel like, right? What about like a selfless virtuosity, a virtuosity that's not, hey, look at me and how good I am at this instrument. How can we imbue musical virtuosity with different virtues. Right? Yeah, I think I've had this, sorry. I, th I think I've had this idea of um, a very kind of zero sum sense of what uh, virtuosity can be. And I'm thinking about as a violinist, I have participated in a lot of string quartets. And so I, I tend to enjoy the role of second violin more um, than first. And growing up, I used to sort of uh, like the worst sin would be to play louder than the first violin. Like I would not want to cover them. And so I would always err on the side of not playing enough. And I had this incredibly just this aha moment when I heard one of uh, my former teachers, Harumi Rhodes, play second violin. And just in this incredibly flamboyant, generative way that gave everyone else in the quartet um, so much to just build on and run with and challenge. and. And so I think that this idea of a generous virtuosity, this is something that um, that I very much feel from Jonathan's playing. Um, it it's it's not a, it's a way of um, of just sharing. I think the word that you used, Jonathan, was delight. Um, in and and that, that that can be a contagious thing. And I think that I'm slowly starting to inch my way back toward being comfortable with um because I think power is is a dangerous thing potentially in any form and I'm a little bit afraid of um stepping back into a space that I internalized in in within a system that doesn't align with my values now and um and so to think about the way that this power can be generative, that it can be generous, that it can be um, delightful is, is a really beautiful thing. When you're talking about some of these structures of power and you're kind of coming from a conservatory context. Yeah, right? kind of. I, yeah, I went to Indiana University for my master's and then I did a DMA um, at a, a university. But, um, but yeah, and I've, I've uh, participated in a lot of uh, very sort of traditional um, uh, music festival, uh, classical music festival programs. Um, so yeah. Um, and I think that uh, that it's very easy to, that I certainly got sucked into ways of thinking about my, uh, my self-worth, my playing, my 
just value judgments that were on a very linear scale. And so it's so, so incredibly free, freeing to get to think about things in a, in a much, uh, much less scarcity mindset framework. This whole process seems like a really, the collaborative process that you guys are working on seems, I mean, it seems freeing and liberatory and sort of healing in, a, in, a, in many different ways, at many different levels, which I think is something that you guys get at with thinking about this kind of tension in the piece between dissonance and harmony, the idea of serenity there. Jonathan, I'm wondering if you, what are some examples of this collective virtuosity or non- individualistic virtuosity, like in a music or writing or any other context. I'm just curious what you're kind of, because I think Michi's description of that was really great. So I'm just wondering what your example would be. (laughs) Well, mine won't be as good as Michi's, um, (laughs) (laughs) which is, I think, par for the course. Um, No, I, I think that there are so many examples of this, right? One extremely generative example, which is very recent that both Michi and I have some relationship to is Taishan Sori and the, and the music uh, of and around Taishan Sori and all the people who he collaborates with. Michi was just able to perform uh, with others um, with Taishan Sori, and maybe in a second you can, you can mention some of that, but um, I think with his work, he... He doesn't just create space for for other people, although he does do that. Um, but in creating that space, he addresses many of the things that Michi has been talking about without actually having to use the language, uh, which is for a lot of people who come through conservatory space, who grow up and into the value system where somebody's self-worth is directly connected to what they sound like, right? Um, which is an incredibly toxic way to be. Um, it's a lot. Of, it's something that, especially people who are very young musicians, who are in those spaces, maybe musicians who are are coded as talented, right? That they have to contend with for many years because it happens in those formative moments. In Taishan's ensembles, to be able to look at collections of people who have had that experience, and then to make it not irrelevant, but to melt it away and to say, no, we are all co-constructors of this musical act that's happening here. Even the people in the audience, like we are all co-constructors and not just in an abstract sense, like you are a composer here just as much as I'm a composer because I'm standing in this particular part of the room relative to the ensemble doesn't mean that I have all the power in this situation. Uh, You're making sounds you're making sounds over there in the back. You're making sounds, um, and it's only together, you know, that we're able to to create something. So his work is is fantastic, and and um, in a in an interview that he gave, I mean, we we did recently. Um, he had this really beautiful um, description. You know, he was riffing on George Lewis, uh, who had this has this really beautiful piece called uh, "The Adornment of Time." We were talking about the phrase the decorating of time, which Michi and I have also talked about. And, you know, even in that, his description, which I pulled up here, he is doing that creating space idea in a way that is inviting and not totalizing, right? He's not, in terms of this virtuosity idea, not trying to create a situation in which he's worshipped. <laughs> he's trying to create a situation and people have room to explore, right? He, he says... Um, for me, at any time, I'm given a length of time in which to come up with something. I'm always viewing myself as decorating a home. Here are these blank rooms. What do I do with them? Do I leave certain rooms as they are? Which ones do I decorate? That's how I view temporality, the decorating of time. You're given this one chance to do that. You're given this one opportunity to envelop a listener in a space where they have this finite amount of time to walk around the space and observe what's in it. So what do they notice? What is there beyond the surface? Essentially, what do they notice that you don't? <laughs> as the person who's created this situation. One example of many, many, many communally virtuosic situations to aspire to. Yeah, I would have absolutely picked that same example too, because it was one of the most mind-blowing experiences of my life to see the way that he um, 
there were there were 12 musicians at the one that I, I got to participate in, but I've also seen him conduct two orchestras in the round. So he was in the middle of this large hall and he had about four batons going and he was just, uh, it, was, it, was, it was nuts. Um, but there was an incredible amount of trust that he invites because he is able to synthesize, he's able to hear all of these people and know what know them personally as musicians and what can bring them out in their best light and then create space for everyone to be as present as possible in ways that it's difficult to just kind of organize uh, from from the ground up um, as say an improvising ensemble at least for me I'm I'm not confident enough to just step out and play as loud as I possibly can uh, because I don't you know I might step on everybody's toes and um and he makes space for everyone not you know not always but if if it feels right for the experience there's lots of things going on but they they are all generative with one another the one thing i want to talk about too is how writing relates to music because you guys are both writers too and part of the piece in airlight is a a written piece this sort of stereotypical view is like music is has this ability to be present and language just it's always mediating something so the the two extremes i suppose but no i mean how do you as the the, the real thing i'm wondering is and is how do you you know how do you approach your art as both a writer and a musician you know it's it's really interesting that you say that about writing because that's that was absolutely an assumption that i had uh probably like up until last year and then right as the pandemic started, I had this really beautiful experience in a, a virtual space with another friend of mine um, named Ambika Kamath, who's a wonderful writer and um, evolutionary biologist. Um, and she shared a little bit from the mem memoir that she's working on. And it felt so present in a way that I hadn't experienced in Zoom before because there's, there's so much about like, musical experiences that get lost in in zoom space and um and so i had this kind of little revelation in that moment that oh writing is is a tool for for presence just as much as as sound and so it's just a more i don't know epistolary i guess i don't know jonathan what would you what would you say sure no that sounds yeah Amluka's work is amazing um i would approach this um you know uh slightly differently i, w I would think you know thinking dialectically and using that that framework that you set up, Aaron, I really enjoy the differences between writing and music uh, in, in terms of the way they feel. In terms of the putting those two things together the way we did with this piece, I'm reminded of, of Brent Hayes Edwards, right? He has the, the beautiful uh, chapter in his, um, uh, in his book Epistolaries on the micropoetics of song titles. And he has some really beautiful phrases in that book on thinking about song titles as keyholes that allow you to see the music in a different way or that frame it in a certain mm. way. And so in this particular case, I think the, the essay portion of it allowed us to create a frame around these sounds that while we were making them, we felt a lot of feelings about. It allowed us to provide that different narrative um, that could allow people a different keyhole into those very sounds that could, you know, they could listen to and maybe feel alienated by, mm. or they might, you know, uh, they might hear it and say, "This is just another classical piece." So, at the level of sound, there aren't necessarily, again, to go back to that formalist idea, there are not really moments in the actual texture of the piece that say, I'm decolonial, right? <laughs> announcing themselves as such. But having a piece of writing where we can use those kinds of words gets us to start listening differently. And in that, in that way, I think working musically in order to find new language and playing with language in order to launch us back into hearing and listening and musicking differently is a really productive dialectic and uh, one that I think we're going to continue exploring. Yeah, I love how you put that, Jonathan. Um, I think that uh, particularly in this virtual uh, collaborative framework and in a, a digital sound space, 
it's so helpful to have this grounding of words the way that you would have the grounding of the space that you might be sharing a musical experience with in quote unquote real life. Um, because so much about a musical experience uh, does depend on who you're with, what, how you're sitting, what, the, what it feels like in, in the room and, and what you've just eaten or, you know, anything, so. Speaking of musical experiences, what are you guys, what are each of you working on? Well, right now I am, um, I have the great privilege of helping out uh, Claire Chase, who's an incredible flutist uh, and communitarian um, and so many other things. Um, and she has been organizing a series of really wonderful uh, performances, uh, commissions with, um, I'm about to play, uh, to join in as in a very very small part with a, a new commission that um, Susie Ibarra has written. Uh, Susie Ibarra is a wonderful percussionist, climate activist, uh, installation artist, um, and uh, and she's written a piece for the Harvard New Music Ensemble and um, and for Claire. And um, so I'm just excited to to sort of float along in that. Um, and uh, yeah excited for what's uh for what's next with um with jonathan as well yeah we were michi and i are working on a new project that is um still in process and that we're really excited about and uh what's you know in terms of the key again the key of this conversation um much of it so far has been epistolary but uh it will actually involve in-person collaboration in Boston uh, sometime in the spring. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and it will also, again, uh, by, by way of its difference from what we have been doing, um, allow us to keep exploring this idea of the relationship between friendship and collaboration and musicking and, you know, community building, you know, because we'll get to, to be there in person in real time. We're not going to our respective corners and, you know, writing our meticulous responses to the other person's <laughs> offering. We're occupying the exact same space, breathing the same air, vibrating the same air with, with these sounds we're making and trying to see what that feels like. 